Welcome to Vinyasa in Verse, the podcast where we connect mind, body, and spirit through poetry and practice. I'm Leslie Ann Hobayan. Together, we'll explore different ways of connecting with our innermost selves and how to tap into the flow of the universe. Because once that happens, anything is possible. Your best life starts now. Hey loves, welcome to another episode of Vinyasa in Verse. How are you on this beautiful morning? I hope that wherever you are, as you listen to this, you feel a sense of lightness, that you feel a sense of beauty, um, just in the few moments you take for yourself. Take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. And so to begin our episode, we will take a look at the gift and it's a very well-worn volume of Hafez's poems. And what's interesting is that I'm sure that I haven't read every poem in the book on this podcast. I've read every book in this poem myself, but when I do the roulette of poems, sometimes there are repeats and that's okay. So for today's poem, we will go with Muhammad's twin. It's a very short poem. Muhammad's twin. I know the one you are looking for. I call that man Muhammad's twin. You once saw him, so now your eyes are weaving a great net of tenderness that will one day capture God. Oh, that was great. Um, just thinking about this idea of how we are so connected with the divine, with God, the universe, whatever name you'd like to give this presence, this universal intelligence, some, some people call it. Um, and to, to think of it as, as being a twin is, is really... I don't know. It's, it's really great to think about this connection. You know, often it's said that twins have this knowing between them that they don't even have to communicate verbally, that they just know. Um, and so to liken that at, to our relationship with the divine is, um, is, is enlightening. Um, I hate using that word. I try not to use that word because it's, it's overused and misused and all these things, but it just feels that that connection feels more concrete uh, in this analogy of the twin. And this idea of weaving a great net of tenderness that will one day capture God. It's so great to think about how God is sort of playing a game with us where he or she eludes um, us as we look for the divine and it's a it's a kind of play, you know. With bhakti yoga, um, the main the main person we like to um, address as God is Krishna, and he's known for his playful um, behaviors. Uh, you know, there are stories of him stealing butter from his mother, <laughs> and um, just all kinds of mischief that he's up to, and and so I'm reminded of that. And thinking about us as um, trying to catch this this little boy 
who is so full of lightheartedness and play and love where we want that so bad that we have to go catch it with our tenderness um, because, you know, it's so appealing. It's just like, yes, that's what I want. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I started this recording thinking I'd like to talk specifically about healing. And normally I don't approach uh, the podcast with any preconceived ideas in mind. I usually let the Hafez poem guide the way. But uh, today I was really thinking about this idea of healing because I've gotten a lot of messages, um, you know, just signals, signs um, in various places uh, about pain, about a lot of pain that people around me are experiencing. And I recognize that pain because I myself have experienced it. You know, for example, um, I'm part of a, a Facebook group of um, writers, uh, women writers of color. Uh, actually, I've, I'm in a couple of groups that uh, have that specific demographic. And lately, I've been seeing some posts from from um, some writers who either are uncertain about how how much of a rate they should charge for uh, a piece that they want to uh, submit for publication, or um, you know, they are feeling hesitant about publishing something because it's based on real life experiences and the people that are in the piece, one, are not going to be happy. Uh, two, may retaliate. Uh, three, because the piece is about the author's personal trauma. Um, and I know that writing is an amazing way to practice healing from trauma. It allows us to release the things that are, are inside of us um, in a very physical way. And there are multiple ways um, and modalities of releasing trauma and healing from trauma. But for this particular instance, you know, writing about it is helpful. And a lot of writers and poets, um, often we express our traumas, our hurt, our hurts um, through our writing so that we can be released from that. And if it happens to be, you know, people that are in our circles or people we know or people we don't know but are still living there's that risk of retaliation there's that risk of you know what are the repercussions and i was thinking about this and I, the option you know one option that <clears throat> people were posing is to like just write for yourself and keep it you know hidden kind of thing and i'm like no that de kind of defeats the purpose i mean for me anyway um, you know, on one level, yes, it's cathartic on a personal level. I'm able to release whatever trauma I need to release. I'm able to express it. But if there's no one there to witness it, for me, that healing, that release doesn't feel complete. Um, and, you know, so witnessing varies from, from people to person to person. But I am thinking more of, you know, I could share that with, you know, a close friend, a therapist, you know, whoever. But it doesn't quite feel like a complete healing until I share it with, you know, the public in some kind of public platform. And that's because when I write, I, and, and I didn't realize this until, until I had been writing for some time that, um, I write with the intention 
that by sharing my story, someone else will read it and know that they're not alone because they have seen their story in what I've shared. You know, this has happened to me, you know, writers always, not always, well, I want to say, yeah, always start out as readers, you know, voracious readers. And as a kid, I was a bookworm, you know, I read books like, you know, they were going out of style. And um, I remember reading uh, a few different things, but specifically Jessica Hagedorn's Dog Eaters when I was in graduate school. All right, we're not going to get into the, the problematics of the fact that I didn't read about like I didn't read about Filipino stories I didn't read any Filipino authors until I was in graduate school okay that's that's a whole different discussion um, that's a, a sign of you know the systemic racism that is pervasive in education in addition to everywhere um, but we're just gonna put that aside for now but I want to acknowledge that but when I first read that um, that novel I was like, oh my God, I feel seen. You know, I feel like I matter. I feel like my stories, my experiences were not weird or it was just me and my, you know, Filipino community in New Jersey. It, you know, we're, we weren't the only weirdos. <laughs> you know, there are people out there who um, share similar beliefs, similar behavior, similar culture, similar stories and, and relationships and things like that. And it just was such a relief for me to be like, wow, I can't believe that this counts as literature, that I count, that I matter. Um, and so it's important to, for, for, for writers of color to, to share our stories because in the traditional you know, literary canon, in the, in the schools, what they're taught are works of literature written by white folks predominantly, you know, like the, the standard or the default is to teach literature from England, basically. <laughs> and then if we talk about American literature, it's all white people. Um, I know that that landscape is changing and it's shifting as it should, which is great news, but that can't continue to change if people of color continue to not share their stories. So it's really crucial and really important for us to, to, not only write our stories and be bold and brave to tell them, but to publish them, you know, to get it out into the world. Um, and so, but, you know, with that, there, there is this, this hesitation um, because we've, we've grown up under the trauma of racism. And yes, it is, it is traumatic because it, it's also insidious. It's very subtle. I mean, for the black community, it is very much more overt than what I've experienced personally as, a, as an Asian and a, a Filipina American. Um, but I will say that there are different levels of trauma that we experience. Um, much of it is invisible. Much of it is psychological and emotional. Um, and so if we're not aware of that, we carry that trauma with us and we struggle and we wonder why things aren't happening and we're doing all the things on the checklist, you know, of how to get published or whatever it is, but things are still not happening or we're too afraid to make those things happen. Um, so I was thinking about this, um, in light of a, a, a person's recent post, regarding her, um, her stories that she's been writing about 
trauma that she's experienced in her life. And, and we're talking like physical trauma. I mean, at least that's what she was implying, uh, physical and mental trauma uh, at the hands of people who were in, you know, had, a, had more power than she did in um, a specific context. And I don't want to say too much about it. Um, but what I want to say, what I want to speak to is this idea of how do we tell our stories in a way that makes us feel safe, in a way that we can tell our truths, we can tell our story and not get re-traumatized, not freak out and not, you know, come crashing down into, you know, this, this emotional collapse where then we end up on the couch under the covers for a week. You know, they say emotional um, hangover and vulnerability hangover is a real thing. And it is. I don't deny that. But what if we can create resilience where that happens, but we bounce back in no time? You know, yes, we go out there, we tell our stories and it's very scary and it, and it feels, you know, like we're wide open and exposed and yeah, and maybe, yes, we do experience the hangover, you know, the emotional and vulnerable hangover. But what if instead of a week on the couch under the covers, what if we have so much resilience that we can bounce back in a few hours? What if like we got a few hours, all right, we're processing it. All right, I'm feeling it. I, I got to cry. I got to, you know, do whatever I got to do. And then a couple hours later, you're like, I'm good. Now I'm going to continue on my day. I'm going to go write more stories. Imagine what that feels like. Imagine what can be possible. I mean, just thinking about it, I'm excited. I'm excited because I can do it. Um, but I know a lot, a lot of folks can't. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about that um, and how that, how that happens. And part of it is, you know, with the experience of trauma, um, specifically uh, trauma from racism, but, you know, Trauma presents itself um, in, in general ways that the varying traumas all kind of follow um, a pattern, we'll say, like generally speaking. You know, we've got the nervous system and we've got our, our um, sympathetic nervous system that, that has the four Fs, right? These are our, our responses to danger, to trauma. Um, and many of you may have heard fight or flight, right? You know, it's that, it's that, all right, I'm in a, I'm in a situation and am I going to fight? You know, I'm going to fight my ground. Am I going to fight for my survival or am I going to take off? Am I like, peace out, see you later, gotta go. Um, but there are other two, two other Fs that some may know about, but there are not often talked about, um, which is freeze and fawn. Now, freezing is obvious. It's just, you just stay in place. You're just like, all right, you pretend nothing happened. It's this, it's this idea. If I don't move, then I'll be safe. Um, and, it, and movement doesn't have to be physical movement. It could be, you know, if I don't say anything, if I keep silent, then I'll stay safe. With fawn, it's more of, all right, let me say something to appease the other person. Let me say something that will smooth things over. Let me make sure that they are comfortable, that, that they are, um, let me just make nice. We'll just say it that way, you know, but at what cost? Because making things nice 
and smoothing things over may give us this illusion that we're creating safety for ourselves, but in the long run, that, that's not necessarily true. So I just was thinking about about this, right? So we've got we've got a few things happening. And, you know, often our physical bodies um, and our and our especially our nervous system are forgotten in how we react to whatever is happening in our lives. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of come back and, and highlight that, you know, so for example, let's say, let's say I'm this, this particular author, you know, and I've written a, a personal essay, you know, so everybody knows that it's true, a memoir. And um, it's about, you know, something bad that happened, you know, let's, we'll say like sexual abuse. And I recount this story, this experience and um, and I'm sharing it because I want those who might also be victims of this person, whoever, you know, person A, um, that they know they're not the only one who suffered at the hands of this person. Uh, and so I want to tell my story, right? But person A, you know, at least in my mind, might be following me, following my every move. And when I say following, I don't mean like literally following me, although that might be the case, but maybe following me on social media, you know, following my writing career, you know, where is she publishing? What is she publishing? What is she saying? Um, so for, for the, the, the sake of, of this um, hypothetical example, let's say person A is, uh, you know, a stalker. And I decide I want to write this story. I write my story and I want to publish it because I want the world to know that this is what happened to me. Because I want other women um, or anybody. It could be, it could be, um, you know, non-binary folks who suffered at the hands of this person. Okay, so I tell this story and I want to publish it. And I say, all right, Oprah, I got this, uh, I got this story that's so, so important and I need to share it. And I'm terrified to share it because it, yeah, I picked Oprah. <laughs> and I'm terrified to share it because it exposes me. It exposes me to people who might say things like, well, you asked for it because you dressed inappropriately or you asked for it because you drank too much or you asked for it because, you know, um, you put yourself in that position. Like, what's wrong with you? You know, all that victim blaming that that our society likes to do. You know, so I publish this story. I keep myself open to that kind of um, commentary, we'll say, those kinds of trolls, right? But it's still like, I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I got to get this story out. Then there's the possibility. Okay, I published this thing with, with Oprah Magazine, right? I say, Oprah, I got this story. And she's like, all right, I'll, I'll publish it. It's really crucial, this story. It's so important. It's just going to blow everything open, uh, kind of like the Harvey Weinstein thing. So let's just go with it. All right. And then person A comes to get me. It says, you know what? I'm going to sue you for slander. You know, that never happened you know, you're just a whore or a slut or whatever it is, you know, you're just garbage. You know, the, the usual predictable things that happen around um, rape culture, right? So uh, then the, the usual um, response, and I say usual, I mean like the pattern, right, is that I, 
as the survivor, but also as the author, would then experience almost a re-traumatization, right? I mean, I probably experienced some re-traumatization from writing the experience and having to relive it. And now I'm experiencing even more because of these comments from other folks. You know, these comments from person A, comments from people who don't know me saying, you know, basically shut up because this is not something that should be said out loud. This is not something that we care about. This is not important, whatever it is, right? And so then I might suffer that emotional vulnerability hangover I was talking about. And then I might go under the covers and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I just subjected myself to this energy and I can't, you know, but you know, in the meantime, you've also got your support. You've got your support system. You've got your friends supporting you, holding you up, saying, you know what? You're so brave. You did it. It's okay. You've got, you know, maybe a therapist, a counselor, somebody who's, who's providing that support, right? But still physically you're feeling beat up, pretty beat up. Um, what the missing piece is, is that building of resilience in the nervous system. And I know it sounds crazy because I think for me, you know, it was crazy. I was like, what the heck does science have to do with my emotional experience right now? What the heck does the nervous system have to do with how crappy I'm feeling right now? And so, you know, I went and got educated. I learned a few things. Um, uh, one of them is from a course called Empathology, um, which you guys should all check out. It's really cool. Uh, I think uh, Lola Pickett, who's uh, one of my mentors um, and a dear friend, she's uh, got her doors opening at the end of uh, September. I think it's September like 21st or something like that. But you should check it out anyway. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Um, but what I learned there was that... Um, we can hold ourselves. We can trust ourselves to be strong. We've got the tools within us to be powerful. It's just a matter of remembering. It's a matter of really listening to ourselves, like deep, deep listening to our innermost selves. And then using that as our guide through life. And I'll tell you, it sounds very simple, but it is not easy. Simple and easy are two different things. But I will say, because of the work that I've done over the last year and a half, almost two years, I'm able to do something like that, to write a really hard story about trauma, to make it public, to send it out in the world, to endure the comments of trolls, um, and, and bounce back from that. That's what resilience is. Resilience is a bouncing back. Um, I will say though, don't be fooled. I still experience the emotions and the feelings that go with that, you know, like, so for example, I had, um, 
I was promoting a, a boosting a, a Facebook post that I had. And, you know, there are people out there that have nothing better to do, right? And so I got a couple comments um, from the boosted posts. You know, I just I just wanted to kind of test the waters out of in Facebook land and see what happened. And I got I got one comment that was like, this is all a hoax. This is all a lie. You know, here's some videos that that prove it. And I was like, oh, OK, you know, I, I blocked and banned and deleted that guy in his comment. But then there was another guy who came on. He was like, you know, how dare you come and post your stuff on my Facebook page and blah, 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 blah. You know, and it was like pretty much personally attacking me where he was like, let me tell you something. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this guy? And why is he going after me personally? Like, I don't, you know, whoa. So I had the feelings of, of like, little freak out, just a little bit. Like, freak out, like, oh, my God, did I do something wrong? It was the, the old people pleaser was coming in. You know, did I do something wrong? I'm so, I, I almost apologized mentally. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe it went on his page. But then I was like, wait a minute. I selected target audience for that. And he's getting my boost because he's looked at similar, you know, pages like this. But then I wonder again, if one, he might've been a bot Two, if he looks at pages that are similar to mine in order for the sole purpose of trolling people, you know, so that could have been a possibility too. So, you know, once I came to that realization, I was totally over it. I just like rolled off my back, like water off a duck and um, block and ban. You know, block and ban is your best friend, I'm going to say. <laughs> but this is all to, to, to the point that I want to share with you is that it's, it's possible to be vulnerable, to be open, to be exposed and still stand strong. And, you know, part of that is building resilience in your nervous system, right? Looking at those four Fs, fight, flight, freeze and fawn noticing the patterns that you have depending on whatever the situation is and then figuring out how you can turn that around into a positive rather than a negative um but then also the healing part you know healing the wounds of trauma and using that as a way not only to grow but to use it as one of your superpowers I know it sounds crazy, right? Like, how am I going to turn trauma into my superpower? Well, I will say that for me, because I am a, a survivor of um, sexual violence, sexual trauma, that I've been able to really step into a power I didn't know I had. And I'm not saying like, yay for trauma. What I'm saying is I was able to transmute that wound into something full of light, into something that feeds my innate power. And that's part of the healing process. Uh, and healing doesn't look like I'm going to take some pills or some supplements or whatever, or I'm going to meditate, you know, 20 times a day or whatever it is. That can be part of the healing process. But the healing is really looking at the trauma, looking at it, you know, in a way that 
it becomes, I, and I, I don't know this, how people are going to feel about me saying this, but it becomes like a friend. I know it's crazy, right? Like I'm going to make trauma my friend, but if, but it's part of you, right? You can't undo it. You can't undo the past. You can't undo the things that happened to you. Um, but you can invite it to be part of you and use it as a tool to use it as your friend that helps you inform how you're going to move forward in the world. And what would happen if trauma, your personal experience became your friend, not like this heavy anchor, like sort of messed up badge of honor. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong on that. I'm talking about the healed part of trauma. Like let's, let's take it, um, you know, as a, let's do a concrete analogy. Let's talk about like a scar, right? You know, when I was in third grade, I remember, um, playing kickball out in the concrete, not the concrete, the, um, blacktop, the, excuse me, the, uh, blacktop was our playground, you know, the parking lot with no cars in it. We were playing kickball and I remember, um, trying so hard to get to first base. I kicked the ball and I was like running my little legs and I fell on my elbows and I scraped my right elbow so bad. It was like this big gash. And then eventually, you know, like our bodies do, it became a big scab, right? And then that scab, because I was a kid, I picked at it, not gonna lie, not gonna hide it either. I picked at it and then it became a keloid. Now, a keloid is just, I don't, you know, you can Google it. It's just like this weird mush of scarred skin, right? I don't even know if that's the right word. I think it is. But it is now part of me. And so what I love about it, as much as I did not like falling on asphalt and scraping my elbow like that, I actually don't remember the pain of it but I do remember the story. And so what I love about this scar that I have, one is to tell my kids that story. They think it's, they think it's the best. I mean, they're older now, they still think it's the best. Um, but it reminds me of how committed I was to getting to first base, that I was willing to hurt myself. I don't know if I was willing to hurt myself, but I tripped, you know? And so I'm making that scar my friend. And I wanna say that over, you know, from, from third grade on, I was very self-conscious about that scar to the point where I hated it. I tried to hide it with a Band-Aid, you know? It was like, I did not want it. I was like, my little mind, you know, even my, my middle school and high school mind, I was like, can we surgically remove this? Because it's like unsightly. Um, but now I love it because it makes me who I am. And so I invite you to think about the traumas that you've experienced and work towards healing those traumas with the intent of transmuting that pain and that wound into something that becomes part of you, that brings you closer to you as your most truest essence, as your most divine self. You know, I mean, I'm a big believer in that our life experiences help us get closer to who we are at our core, at our essence. And so how can we 
take the good and the bad in that light, in that way, so that we can live to be our truest selves, to find our life's purpose. I mean, this is a lot. I know it's a lot. So I, these are just like little bits and pieces I wanted to share with you because I, I'd like for you, my listeners, to start thinking differently about trauma, to start thinking about healing and what does healing mean? You know, what does healing mean for you? What does it look like? Um, for me, it was different things. I was all over the place. I, you know, I experimented with different modalities and, and I'm still, you know, testing out um various things, various philosophies, various practices. Um, and when I say testing out, it's like, okay, does this work? Does that work? Not work? Um, you know, for me right now, what's, what's consistently working is meditation and Kundalini yoga. I mean, there's something so freaking amazing about the technology of Kundalini yoga that it addresses all levels of our existence. You know, in Kundalini Yoga, there are 10 bodies, right? And I'm not going to go through the 10 because to be honest, I don't know if I'll remember all the 10. (laughs) I mean, I think I can. But, you know, just for simplicity's sake, Kundalini Yoga addresses the physical, the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, all at the same time. And, um, And so for me, that's been really helpful in my healing process. Now, I've also done, you know, practices with sound healing, with mantra. Um, you know, I'm now looking into, um, into alchemy and um, ancient healing practices of the Philippines, you know, uh, into like shaman and shamanism in the Philippines. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm continually learning and looking for ways to, to deepen that healing. And so I invite you to do the same, to think about, all right, you know, what kinds of things are working for me and what are not? You know, I just um, was doing for a few weeks now, uh, maybe it's been, maybe it's been two months or something. I, I was doing the five Tibetan rites. Uh, for those of you that don't know about that, it's, um, it's also known as the Fountain of Youth, which is really fun. Um, but what it is, it's five specific exercises, specific movements based in ancient uh, Tibetan Buddhist traditions that are designed to activate, to amplify, to align all of your chakras, right? And so when I first did it, you know, I took a class with my friend Judith and uh, she taught us how to do it and how to build up our practice. And I got so excited. I was like, yes, I feel great, blah, 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 blah. And then I want to say over the last week, I was feeling kind of uh, about it. You know, I wasn't getting the same benefit. I was feeling kind of like I was doing it out of obligation rather than the health benefit, rather than getting clarity from it. And then I decided, you know, I think it was just yesterday or maybe the day before, I said, you know what, I'm not going to do it um, and see what happens. You know, I mean, I'm a big believer in commitment and consistency in, in seeing results because results are gradual, I mean, meaningful results. And I was like, well, I've been doing it for some time now. You know, let's see what happens when I don't do it, right? Because I don't want to commit to something that doesn't nourish me, that doesn't feed me, that doesn't benefit my, my, my overall well-being and my highest good. So I said, all right, let's just test it. I can always go back 
you know, and do it again, but let's just see. So I didn't do it um, yesterday. Oh no, maybe it was just this morning. I didn't do it and I feel fantastic. And I wanna say that I think because I lost interest, I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but because then the practice became more of a chore than a joy, the benefit of that practice was no longer viable for me. And so by removing that component out of my practice, I actually was able to enjoy the rest of my practice, which is, you know, mostly Kundalini yoga and and meditation and writing meditation. And I just felt fantastic. And so, you know, I invite you to experiment with different things, but to try them out for long enough to see if it resonates or not. You know, when I say long enough, I want to say like maybe two, three weeks. It's a good gauge, maybe longer. You know, in Kundalini yoga, we are committed. uh, We like to make 40 day commitments because 40 days is when things really start to set into your um, nervous system, into creating new neural pathways that support you and and help you heal. Um, So, yeah, so I invite you to to try try things out. You know, I'm excited. I mean, as much as everyone talks about how great the five Tibetan rites are, and they are great, um, I don't think I need to commit to that um, every day, you know, for eternity. I think what I'll do is, it, for me, it seems like it's a tool that is good for, um, you know, every once in a while when I feel that I need support or I need like a energetic chiropractic adjustment. <laughs> um, I'll do that. But for now, um, I'm going to stick to my, my Kundalini practice, my writing practice. I have a daily journaling uh, meditation practice and a daily poem practice and, and go from there and see how it goes. So yeah, so there's there's quite a few things here uh, that I'd like for you to to think about. Um, what does healing look like for you? You can even start with what needs to be healed. Sometimes we don't know. Um, you start with the small things, you know. Notice how you feel in certain situations and what is your response to that. Notice your 4F response in those stressful situations, those places of dis-ease or discomfort and see if you can find a pattern and then begin that healing process there. Um, But if you want to kind of jumpstart the healing process, uh, I'm slowly putting together um, a course on on that with uh, Kundalini Yoga at its center. Um, So if you're interested in learning about that, shoot me an email um, and, uh, and we can talk. I don't have all the, all the things in alignment yet, which is why I'm not really saying much about it. I just know that it is, um, it's going to be a course focused on healing and radiating, um, using some Kundalini yoga technology, which is really cool. And, um, and some journaling and some other things, but I'd love to hear from you if you are interested in that. Um, but anyway, I didn't mean to make that like a, a little I can't even talk spiel. Yeah, there you go. Um, But it was on my mind, so I had to share it with you. All right, so to close this episode focused on healing and nourishment, um, I actually want to read you a poem by a beloved friend of mine, an old friend. Uh, He and I go way back, and uh, he's got 
a new book out. It just came out yesterday, and I'm so excited to read it. Um, the book is called Be Holding, and it's a book-length poem. It's a single poem, you know, as long as a book. I'm so excited to read it. I can't wait. But, my, but his name is Ross Gay, and um, this poem is from his collection called uh, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, one of my favorite books. Uh, and so this poem, to close our episode, is called Ending the Estrangement. Ending the estrangement from my mother's sadness, which was, to me, unbearable, until it felt to me not like what I thought it felt like to her, and so felt inside myself, like death, like dying, which I would almost have rather done, though adding to her sadness would rather die than do. But by still, by sitting still, like what, in fact, it was, a form of gratitude, which, when last it came, drifted like a meadow lit by torches of cardinal flower, one of whose crimson blooms, when a hummingbird hovered nearby, I slipped into my mouth, thereby coaxing the bird to scrawl on my tongue its heart's frenzy, its fleet nectar-questing song, with whom, with you, dear mother, I now sing along. <sighs> love it, love it, love it, love it. All right, my friends, I wish you lots of healing. I wish you lots of comfort and light. I wish you lots of support. I wish you knowledge that you have got this. I wish you self-trust that you have got this. I wish that you believe it. You have got this. And to close our episode, the divine light in me bows to the divine light in you. Until next time, namaste. Healing trauma is different for everybody. What does healing look like for us? What tools can we use? How can we tap into our own innate power to assist in that healing? Join me for a free three-day pop-up training on Instagram Live, September 22nd to 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll talk about how our bodies hold trauma, how to identify those spots, and what to do to begin healing. Follow me at Surya Gyan Yogi, that's S-U-R-Y-A-G-I-A-N-Y-O-G-I, or check out suryagyan.com for more info. Your healing is so important to living your best life, which now starts here.